Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming out on a, a finally a wintry day. Nice to have a wintry day at long last. Um, <laughs> the subject for this evening is walking. Walking. You know, it's, it seems like a strange subject, but hopefully it will make sense as we go along. Remember, again, we're talking about the humane arts, what makes it possible to live a humane life, a humane society, a humane community, what gives rise to the kind of artistic and philosophical, cultural, scientific fluorescences that we have all benefited from and that we all look to as sort of the pinnacle of human achievement. Um, last time we talked about leisure as being a component that is shared by many of the elements that are to become. The first one is walking. Um, I think without doubt, the single most commonly cited aid to creativity, clear thinking, uh, composition, development, personal or artistic is walking. I, I made this list, a brief list of dedicated walkers. I could have gone on and on and on and on. It's ubiquitous throughout the cultural history. In letters, notes, journals, um, books, by authors, we have clear and consistent references over and over again to the importance of walking, to their own uh, self-awareness, the development of the depths of thought in their artistic processes, philosophical ideas, scientific ideas, mathematical breakthroughs. It comes up again and again and again. It's just, it's just consistent and ubiquitous and therefore I think often overlooked. What's particularly remarkable about this is for most of human history, if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to walk. And so these are people who are going out of their way to walk more than they have to walk already. It's like, it's, like, it's not like they don't walk, because you have to. You walk, you don't take the bus in Athens, right? You wait a long time for the classical Athens bus. Uh, so, so the notion that even in an environment where walking consistently is required, is a necessary component of day-to-day -day life, that all of these uh, individuals would go out of their way to talk about how important walking is to their process, um, I think should lead us or give us a big clue that this is hugely important. And so I want to talk about why that is, but also, again, give further examples of this. So I like all these quotes. Or just, and there's, there's hundreds of these. Again, this can goes on and on. But uh, Nietzsche, all truly great thoughts are conceived by walking. He, he held this. Another time he says, no thought that cannot be maintained while walking is worth having. <laughs> right? Which I thought was an interesting idea, really, because his, his, his notion is, if it's so subtle and convoluted and evanescent that you can't keep track of it while you're strolling about, it's probably stupid. Right? I mean, this is sort of as like, if, if you can't think it while you're walking, you shouldn't be thinking it at all. <laughs> And then Thoreau, who was, you know, sort of an all-world walking champion, I think that I cannot preserve my health and spirits unless I spend four hours a day at least, and it is commonly more than that, sauntering through the woods and over the hills and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagement. Uh, and he kept this. I mean, this, he was a champion. He walked all the time. He had a tendency not to walk on paths, too. He just would go right through the weeds and bushes, and he was sort of crazy. Kierkegaard, I'm not a big fan of citing Kierkegaard for any reason, but here's one from him. Above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I've walked myself into my best thoughts, and I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. Right? So this is, you know, for him it works both ways. Liberated you from bad thoughts, brought up good thoughts. 
after a day's walk, everything is twice its usual value. Uh, Trevelyan. Uh, so just over and over this comes up. Um, if you are seeking creative ideas, go out walking. Angels whisper to a man when he goes for walks. Um, this is from a poem by Neruda. I stroll along serenely with my eyes, my shoes, my rage, forgetting everything. Pablo Neruda, right? So throughout history, throughout time, and again, it's hard to conceptualize this, but look at the list. You know, Moses, Jesus, Buddha. There are some influential guys. <laughs> Lao Tzu, who probably didn't exist, was famous for walking. Um, Einstein and Schrodinger had these long walks where they argued things out. Einstein would walk for so long that he would get lost. And he would call the, the university, well, I guess the Center for Advanced Studies, and say, hey, I'm at the corner of this and this. Can somebody pick me up? Because I don't know where I am. Schrodinger got followed by the FBI because he was a foreigner and he kept walking all over the place. They couldn't figure out what he was doing. They figured, he must be a spy. He must be some sort of uh, foreign guy here to, to, to discover our secrets. And then after a while they realized, no, he's just a nut job mathematician wandering all over the place, right? And, and it just goes on and on. Wordsworth Coleridge Shelley. It's important to remember that when the Romantics started wandering about in nature, this was not commonly done and was certainly not cited as a helpful and valuable activity. They were, they were one of the early promoters of the nature hike. Um, I mean, just on and on. Beethoven walked so regularly in all weather that they said it was basically the only thing he did regularly in his life. He lived a very irregular life. He often lived in six or seven apartments at once. And he would spend a little time in one, and then later in the day he'd go to another one, and then he'd go back to another one, and then he'd forget where he actually lived. Right? He would forget, like, well, I, I have a piano. Which, which apartment is it in? Right? So, but what he did regularly is he walked every day, pretty much until he got very ill at the end of his life. Um, uh, you know, it, it just goes on and on. Uh, but two, I think, huge examples that, that are worth thinking about. One is, is Goethe who changed his life through three walks. And, and usually his biographies are broken up by these walks that he went on. Um, famously, he drugged the Duke. He worked for the Duke in the court in, in Weimar. And he had this idea that he could humanize the nobility, and then you would have an aristocracy that was worth being ruled by. So this is one of the, Goethe's early experiments. So he thought, if I take this young Duke, educate him, raise him right, get his mind right, then we'll have an aristocracy that you want to work for, that it's that you're worthy of someone like Goethe being their you know, private secretary, whatever he was there in Weimar. And so what does he do? He drags the Duke out walking. He made him walk all over the place. At the end of it, the Duke said, I think it's the hardest thing I've ever done. This, you know, Goethe's maybe a little crazy. What is he doing out here? And again, uh, Goethe thought it failed. He said he didn't really think he had humanized the Duke. But the other letters from the court thinks that that's not entirely true. They said he came back a changed man, that whatever Goethe did to him out there in, in the wilds worked at some level, because they say he did come back a more serious, more profound person. Goethe thought, man, not that much better. But, you know, but, it was, but in his own life, he did a walking tour of Italy. If anybody's ever read his uh, unbelievably sexually explicit notes from his travels in Italy uh, and, and other, other such elements, really transformed his life. 
Most, I think I was trying to ponder what's the greatest example, and it's got to be the Ramayana. If, if anybody's read the Indian classics, you, the, it's the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, both of them hugely long. Um, but in the Ramayana, which is basically translated, you can translate it as uh, Rama's journey. Rama's uh, is the king in waiting, he's the prince, and he goes off on this long walk basically all across India various adventures, so on and so forth, but it's a long walk to all these important places in India. While he's gone, his sort of evil stepmother, or the second wife, I forget how all this hierarchy works, but it's the, like the number two wife conspires against the king to get her son promoted to the throne. And then when the king dies, the son is supposed to take the throne, but he says, no, I am not going to steal the throne from my half-brother, Rama, it's his. And so he walks all the way to the forest in a Yodosha um, to meet with Rama and say, come back. The people want you to come back and rule us. We're waiting for you. And Rama says, no. I've made a promise that I wouldn't return for 12 years, and I think this is at year 8, and I won't come back until then. But take my shoes and put them on the throne as a symbol that I'm coming back. I mean, this is like the centrality of the whole... It is a long-walking narrative. And the symbol of his return is the shoes that he, you know, theoretically, will be walking back in. That, and they became, therefore, very symbolic in Hinduism of, of various sorts of nobilities. There are certain sacrifices made to the shoes, so on and so forth. It become very important symbolically. It also doesn't start, but it reinforces this uh, tradition of the pilgrimage. What's the pilgrimage is this notion that just wandering about is good for you spiritually, right? And it seems to be true. Estimates are at any time in India, give or take 20 to 50 million people are on a pilgrimage. Um, think about that. But I, I love this idea because it turns out that if you're not feeling well, middle age, you don't like your job, you're upset with your spouse, whatever, you can say, you know what, I'm going to go on a pilgrimage. Everybody says, oh, that's great. <laughs> good for you. Right? I'm going to kind of think, you just sort of go through purification, travel around, do something, get this all cleared up in my head. And it seems to work, right? It seems to be like a good system. So the importance of the walk is huge. Again, if you just think of the history of the pilgrimage all over the world, but India sort of mastered it, raised it to a fine art. Um, it, it has been significant. So again, the evidence for the incredible importance of it is, is clear. The why... I think is less clear. I can find really almost nothing written on this subject about why walking would be so great. So I've come up with my own sort of theories. We'll see what they're worth. Uh, primarily, though, I think the clearest argument is simply our brains evolved with us at the same time as bipedalism evolved. Bipedalism, walking on two legs, bipedalism, um, extraordinarily rare. In the natural world right now, there's only six sort of uh, mammalian creatures that are even marginally bipedal that are alive today. Um, and most of them are small, they have tails, and they hop about more than they actually walk. We're the only fully bipedal species currently alive. Um, in the uh, fossil record, there have been a few others, but again, it's extraordinarily rare. And what's clear in the human evolutionary history is as we became more upright, our brains became larger, and other things about the way our eyes were spaced and the way our ears worked evolved at the same time. So that by the time we become fully bipedal, 
We have also achieved fully developed brains. These were, you know, they happened at the same time, they're corollary. And so I think it must be at some level, we just feel really good when we walk because we've evolved in every part of us, physically, mentally, and, and, and physiologically as walkers. And it is important to note that we are spectacularly efficient walkers. If there used to be, if you were a hunter, one of the things that you used to do, um, you know, back before there were lots of roads and things, during the winter in particular, is if there was a certain prey that you wanted, you just walked behind it. Because human beings can walk any creature to death. We can, just, we'll, we, we can walk, they cannot get away from us. They can't run away from us. There's no way they can escape as long as we can follow the tracks. Eventually they have to either turn and attack us or they'll die. We can literally walk any creature to death. We can walk much further than horses can walk. So if, if you're traveling and you need to get someplace and it's, you, know, you have some problem, the best thing to do is kill your horse, eat it, and keep walking. <laughs> this is true. I'm, I'm not making that up. That's true. Because we can walk farther than any other creature. Our capacity for this is astounding. We can walk hundreds of miles with very limited breaks, very limited amounts of food. We need water, but other than that, we're good. We're really spectacular at this. Um, another way to think of it is, I think for most of us, I said, okay, we're going to run four miles. It'd be like, no, we're not. Right? Yes, we are not going to. We can train ourselves to be really good runners, and remarkably good runners, actually. But just randomly, we're not. But everybody in this room, believe it or not, almost all of you could walk 20 miles. Your feet might hurt. Your knees might get a little achy. You would notice that you had done it, but you could do it. It wouldn't be like a physical uh, impossibility at all. Because we just... It's what we were evolved to do. So I think part of this walking is simply that's what we're designed for. That's what we've evolved to be. And hence we fulfill all our evolutionary physiological needs when we walk and so it feels good. It's liberating at some level. Um, I think another part of it is, is the state of mind that you achieve when walking. One of the curious things about the modern world in particular, of course this wouldn't apply earlier so this can only be an aspect of the modern world, but for the modern world is if, for instance, if you're in a car and you're traveling at 20, 30, 40 miles an hour, that's, the human experience is not designed for that. You can't smell things. Anything you see goes whizzing past, right? Fast. You can't stop and ponder. Uh, Russell Page, a great garden designer, was brought in to design highways. And he said, one of the things you have to do if you're going to design highway verges is make really uniform patterns that are broken occasionally. So five miles of yew trees with the occasional oak forest or something. Because when you're traveling on a freeway, you're going so fast that what when you're walking would be very boring in a car is correct. But most of nature doesn't come that way. In a car, you're disconnected from sound, from smell, and sights are coming in too fast to really process them well. So this is disorienting to the human at some level. When you walk, things come to you at the pace that we're sort of used to them coming, used to being in the evolutionary sense. We can smell, we can hear, we can orient ourselves. Anytime we wish, we can pause. Um, finally, there is also the notion of just 
your heart rate and how everything works within your body. And anybody who's ever strolled or gone for walks, there's always this sort of moment, at, you know, depending on where you're at, where, boy, things feel really good. You just sort of feel loose. You relax. You sort of exhale. This kind of physical exhale. Well, this is the release of endorphins. It's not a, it's not a, 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 you're not imagining you feel this way. You really feel this way because your body just released a bunch of endorphins. And we now know that people who work really hard and they exercise hard, they talk about this. You'll get the sort of, uh, they call it, you know, uh, runners who are, who are endorphin junkies because it feels good. But you don't have to run or lift weights or jump off buildings. It, you just walk and your body starts releasing these endorphins automatically. And so, you actually are sort of a moderately self-drugged state. Uh, and, and it's good drugs, healthy drugs, right? Not the artificial man-made drugs, right? This is, this is supposedly good for you. Um, so this, this is all part of it. But again, exactly why, hard to say. That it is, is clear. Um, exactly why, I don't know. Those are some of my hypotheses. Now, a couple of issues here, though. Everybody now knows, right, that walking is good for your health. This is one of those travesty ideas that's come along to ruin a perfectly good idea, right? So uh, I, I looked this up online, and they said, oh, yes, one of the best things you can do from your health is walk. Now, you want to walk for 30 minutes at 45 to 55% of your maximum heart rate five times a week, or you want to walk for 30 minutes, 65 to 75% of your heart maximum heart rate, three times a week. There you go, now you're healthy, congratulations. Right, this is back to the leisure. This is where we get everything absolutely wrong. The reason to walk is because walking feels good and you enjoy it, right? This is an important thing. You think more clearly, you reflect more clearly, introspection. What happens when you go 30 minutes, 45 to 55% of my maximum heart rate? Notice what happens now. One, you have a schedule. Okay, so I'm going to be out for 30 minutes, so I'll be back in 30 minutes, and then I can do this, and then I can do this, and it's all fit in my schedule, and oh goodness, I've started a little late, so I'll just rush this walk. Right? It's like my theory about deep breathing, you know, breathe deep and slow. Well, shit, screw that, get that over with. <laughs> Right? Why doesn't that make me feel relaxed? I did it. Lots of deep breaths. Got to take it care of. Same thing with the 30 minutes. It's not so much the 30 minutes, although that's a problem, but notice now you've got the clock ticking in your head. I've got something to be at in 45 minutes, so I've got to get this 30-minute walk out of the way. Now it's something to do. Oh, I've got to do this. Take care of my 30 minutes so that I'm healthy. So now I'm strolling along. What is this... 45% of my maximum heart rate. Now I have a math problem to do. Right? As I walk. And notice you've seen people walking like this, right? They go, oh, my heart rate's too low. So I will pick up the pace. Wait, that's 62% of 30 is, is wait a second. Right? For 30 minutes. This is not walking. I don't know what this is. It is not inducing a mind-clearing experience. But notice this is the idea of health. Health means elevate your heart rate for as short a time as possible because we're busy and we have other things to do. Now what if the doctor said, or the person who wrote, this is a good just major health tip, I forget where, I, um, I think it was actually the Harvard School of Health, but I forget where I got this, but one of the big web pages talking about you know, what's good for you, what's healthy for you. 
Why don't they say, oh, I take a leisurely slow stroll for, you know, 90 minutes to four hours, like Thoreau. <laughs> right? You, you see, you, you can't say this to Americans, because they're like, 90 minutes to four hours, what the hell are you talking about? I have things to do. <laughs> well, if you have things to do, don't walk. Right? This is the key. Again, this is also why I had to do the time studies. I hope you did this. I don't need to know the results, but I think if we're honest with that, most of us will discover we do have the time to do things. Whether or not we want to do them or are doing them, you know, we probably have the time if we chose to spend it certain ways. And I think we probably have the time to go for walks if we wanted to. But this is what we've done, right? Put it on a schedule, put a target abstract goal, right? Get my heart rate up for so long, and then I'm done with it. Great, checked it off my list, next thing. Antithetical to the idea of leisure. Antithetical to the idea of the human. No, the reason to walk is for the pleasure of walking itself. But how do you do that? I mean, I have literally a question. I thought about this. What are the elements of a good walk when what we're told to do is so clearly, abysmally wrong-headed? One, I think the first thing we should do, and this will hold for several other things we'll talk about, is you want to get rid of time. You do not want to have a time limit. For myself, I, I love to walk, so I'm very biased in favor of this topic, but um, nothing ruins a good walk more than having to be someplace. So I always like to leave lots more time than I could possibly ever need. If, if I need to be someplace in two hours, great, I'll walk and then I don't have to worry about it. But anything less than that, then I start worrying, oh, if I've been gone too long, and then I inevitably come home far too early, and I've just ruined everything. You know, it's just it's bad. But if we just let go of time and just say, well, I'm going to walk as long as it feels good. Walk for five miles, walk for ten miles, walk for three miles. Right? But again, this is one of those difficult things to just let go and say, no, I'm just going to walk. Just going to walk. No particular place necessarily. Or, or I want to walk over, you know, I want to walk to town. I'll see what's going on over there and then maybe I'll walk back. This notion of just letting go of the goal and of the distance and of the time. Just, just, just have to get that out of your head. And this, again, is also consistent um, through much of this. Even the pilgrimages, which have theoretically very specific, you're supposed to walk from point A to point B. And you, and you want to arrive at point B on a certain date. But if you actually look at it, it's really no problem making that walk. Usually, most pilgrimage walks... You could do it in half the time if you were trying at all. They're not designed for you to get from point A to point B. It's just an excuse to go out strolling. And then a big party at the end, because you usually, if you're in India, you show up with 10 million other people. Uh, at, at, you know, at some river conjunction or whatever's going on. Um, but it, it, it's, not, it's not a rushed thing. If anybody's read the Canterbury Tales, um, this is one of the things that struck me the first time I read this, which is, uh, the tale of the pilgrim. In another case, some of them are walking and some of them are on horseback, but most of the time everybody's walking. Um, they don't ever get anywhere. It's really frustrating. If, if you read it, you realize, like, oh, what they just stopped? What are they stopping again for? They've gone like a mile. <laughs> get going. I kept the first time around, I like, come on, go, 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 go. You can make better time than this. But it took me a while to realize, oh, they're really not trying to make good time. They aren't really that much in a hurry to finish the pilgrim. The pilgrimage itself is the goal of a pilgrimage. 
The walking about is the goal of walking about. That's it. Nothing else. So step number one is to try and figure out, okay, how do I release this relentless press of time and allow myself to clear that out of my head? I mean, I don't know. That's, that's a question, but it is definitely one of the things you need to do. Second thing is this whole heart rate stuff, heart rate, aerobic fitness, all this. Again, it, it, it is, as far as I can tell, everything we think is healthy is not healthy. <laughs> I have, the contrary doesn't seem to be true, that everything we think is not healthy is healthy, unfortunately. <laughs> but that, this does seem to be a good rule of thumb. If they say it's good for you, it's almost certainly a bad idea, right? Um, this, this notion of elevating your heart rate, notice this artificially. Right? Walk until you get your heart rate up by walking fast. Why? If you walk at a good pace for a long time, your heart will do its thing, and you'll feel good. And so, hey, it must be healthy. If you feel good, alive, vibrant, breathing, fresh air, outside, you know what? You're, that's probably healthy. I, I, the chances of all of a sudden going, wait, fresh air, I feel good, I'm exercising. Maybe this is bad, my heart rate's too low. <laughs> it, it's, it's silly, see how silly it sounds? But again, there it is. This is what we. This is our training. You know, heart rate up, get aerobic, go for so long. Let go all. I mean, that just have to let go of that. Um, again, the second another aspect of this. Uh, people talk about okay, again, like with the pilgrimage, where are we walking to? Answer: Nowhere. Where? Wherever you want to go. That's where you're walking to. And, and, and if on the way you decide to go someplace else, we'll go there. And if on the way there you decide to go someplace else, we'll go there. But mostly, it's the walking. Again, I, I keep saying that, but it's, this is the idea. There is no goal. There is no end result for the walking except for the walking. <clears throat> so psychologically, this is the state of leisure. This is why I started with leisure. is the notion that the walking doesn't have a goal, it doesn't have an endpoint, it doesn't have an outcome, it is the walking that is the part of it. The weird thing is, is when we put time constraints and goals and whatever fitness issues, it actually kills the very thing or damages it or makes it harder to get to that you might gain. Um, so this is one challenge I think is psychological that we face in, in the environment for walking. Uh, another aspect of this, I think, is, is also environmental, because we're in a society that loves cars. You might have noticed this. Um, cars do not love walkers. Um, cars do not like them at all. And so we live in an environment that is built almost entirely for people who are in large, relatively noisy uh, vehicles. Again, this is, this is not that helpful for the walk. If you've ever been someplace where there's like old medieval cities and, and villages, and people always go, oh, this is so great. This is so wonderful. I love the scale. I love the beauty. I love the way all the paths wind around. The roads are really narrow. Those were walking paths. The medieval villages, in particular, and cities were laid out by the way people walked. Because, of course, that's how everybody got around. The, they didn't do intersections. Not a lot of right angles, particularly if it was any place at all hilly. Because, you know, people strolled. They followed the natural lay of the line, of the land. And so you get these curvy, weird, convoluted, slightly up, slightly down paths. And people, oh, that's great. 
until you get the car, in which case you have to widen those, pave them, straighten them out, put in intersections and stoplights. Um, so this is one problem that we've run into, right? Particularly when cars are going fast. If you've ever been walking along a road, particularly country roads, and it's like, you know, it's very nice, very quiet, and then someone flies past you at like, you know, 65 miles an hour and there's no shoulders. It's like, ah! There's just sort of a bit that's, that there's that moment of e, which is sort of, again, the opposite of a relaxing walk. The second thing is we live in, in often, particularly in cities, we're lucky here in Port Townsend, I would say, but in many cities, in many areas, very visually, what I call visually noisy environments. Lots of signs, lots of flashing things, lots of bright things. No, this is all unnatural. Nature doesn't have that much of those kinds of, of events. You know, bright orange neon things don't occur naturally, right? And so our actual visual environment tends to be kind of jarring. Um, and, and not particularly conducive to the reflective, reflexive walk. Um, noise, not just cars, but I'm always shocked. If you go to Seattle and you get off the ferry, and the first thing that shocks me is how loud it is. It's like, wow, it's really loud here. Cars going by. I don't know what all the noise is, to tell you the truth. I just know that it's, it's really hugely noisy. And everywhere they've run experiments, by the way, there's people who work on this, sound engineers, in, in uh, urban environments, and they can do things to cancel out noise, not cover it up, but actually to cancel it out so you don't hear it, so it sounds very quiet. People congregate in those spaces. There was a big building downtown Berlin where they ran one of these experiments. It was just supposed to be a temporary installation, and they had canceled out the noise. Um, you just create the... Uh, counterwave. The counterwave. You just the mirror image of the waveform, and then that basically silences at about 90%, 85%. And then they put in soft music and some natural sound. That's all they did in a, in a long sort of, I guess, you, I don't know, those spaces between big buildings, I don't know what you call them, sort of caverns, caves. Anyway, the people in the building loved it so much that they, that they kept, everybody started having their lunches out there, congregating out there, everybody spent time out there, and then they said, well, that little experiment's over and we're taking the equipment out. And they're like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You're leaving that stuff. We are there. So they ended up buying it. Actually, the, the building people actually bought it. They said, no, because this is just so nice, so quiet, so soothing to be in places that are relatively, not absolutely, but relatively quiet. Also, if you've ever walked on the beach, the incessant churning of the wind and the waves acts as the same way. You, you become deaf to it. Our, our, the way our hearing works is, is very unique. It measures um, changes, uh, not so much particular events. And so if you have a constant drone like the sea sound or the wind or both, pretty soon, you, you know, everyone knows you almost feel like you're deaf, like it's just gone quiet. That's because your ears just start acting like the equipment and just cancels it out. And so you are walking in what to you is a really strangely quiet environment. Plus, all the background noise is masked by the noise of the sea. And so there you are. Inside your own mind, you're in this very still, quiet, calm environment. It's a, I think it's one of the reasons walking on the beach is such a, a, an alluring and interesting psychological experience, because, in part because of the strange acoustic environment which we create with our own minds. So um, we have the sonic environment, the visual environment, the built environment, 
But all that being said, I think really you can still have pleasant walks almost anywhere. I was in Seattle one time and I wanted to go for a walk. And I was down in the waterfront, basically where the ferries kick out, a little further down. And I thought, well, I'll just walk along the waterfront. And where the viaduct is, which has to come down, God, that thing is horrible, right? Why anybody even think, just tear it down. We need an earthquake just to get rid of that. Uh, you know, as soon as you get past there, you hit where the cruise ships dock. Has anybody been down there? Well, it turns out the cruise ships aren't there, which is when I was there. There's nothing. And so you just empty, it's sort of like a lot of parking lots and concrete, and it's not particularly beautiful, but the ocean is there, or the sound is there. There's almost no traffic, and all of a sudden, and it's pretty quiet, because the, 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 the major streets have all receded. They're up on the hill above you, and there's no real traffic if the cruise ships aren't around, and the ships are going by, and the wind's blowing, and all of a sudden, oh, hey, this is pretty good. So I think most places you can find a pleasant environments to walk in. Another aspect that we need, city or not, is we need good ground for walking. Um, sometimes, I, I do like to go on the mountains and backpack, but often it's not that meditative because they're doing a crappy job on the paths. Right? It's like, come on, you guys. No. I mean, you can't do it in the mountains, right? It would make no sense. That's, it's a different experience. But when you're walking someplace that's relatively level, relatively smooth, um, it, it's much nicer. When you start hitting very uneven ground, it's a different experience entirely, I would argue, because now you're paying attention to where your feet are going, you're trying to figure out not to fall down, not to fall off this cliff and kill yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's, so there's interesting physical aspects to this as well. So then the converse of that is what makes for a good walk. Right? This is, I think, that the key here is, let's say we've given ourselves the leisure, the chance, the opportunity to go for this pleasant walk. What do we need? One, no time limits. Right? Just make that clear. By the way, I want to ask you, like the last experiment, I want you all to go for a nice walk before the next lecture. Right? So this is, I keep giving you assignments. That's one of the assignments. Um, try, try this out. No time limit, though. Just at some point when you have an afternoon or a morning free, just say, I'm going to go for a walk. Walk someplace relatively quiet. Like I said, Port Townsend, except for one or two roads, is really vacant most of the time. If you drive around, you probably have seen me wandering about. I do a fair bit of wandering about. Um, and most of the places, most of the time, there just aren't that many cars around. It's really quite nice. You can walk right down the middle of the street for miles. <laughs> and occasionally someone will come by, and the speed limit's really low. So that's great if you live in the city. It's actually a little harder some places in the country because most of the roads are faster and they don't have shoulders. So it's like, in some ways it's nicer to walk in, inside the city limits. Um, second, I, this is a weird one, but I, and I've been thinking about this watching people dress appropriately. People often say, like, tonight I, I went for a walk just, you know, get ready for the lecture. I walk every night to get ready for the lectures. And I thought, well, it's a walking lecture. I better walk tonight. <laughs> um, and I'm often shocked. People say, oh, it's so cold outside. It's like, no, it's not. It's whatever the temperature. It's not particularly cold. I mean, it feels a little chilly, but we don't live in Alaska or Antarctica. I mean, come on, let's be serious. Um, what we're really saying is, I don't want to put on clothes. <laughs> right? I want to pretend like I'm in Hawaii and I want to wear flip-flops and a tank top and shorts. If you do that, yes, it's very cold outside. But if you wear gloves and a little hat and a scarf and a nice coat and some warm shoes, it's toasty. In fact, after you walk a while, it becomes too hot. 
So this is, I, I, again, I said it's a weird recommendation, but I don't see people out walking. Two days ago I walked, it was, the, it was really blowing, but otherwise a quite beautiful day, and I walked from, well, downtown up to the port, up over the hill to Morgan Hill, and then back down. And I don't think I saw two people outside walking. And it was really quite a lovely day. Beautiful fresh air, nice, cool, crisp wind coming down. But people said, oh, it's really cold. It's like, well, I had warm clothes on. I was toasty warm. Um, and so but it's, it's, it's this weird psychological thing that we've created where, I guess, all I can figure is that we don't want to wear clothes. And so, <laughs> you know, the idea is, but, but if you do dress a little moderately warmly and you start walking, very soon you'll be too warm. You'll, you'll have to like, take off the hat, maybe the scarf or whatever, and you'll feel great, I guarantee this. Um, but dressing appropriately is, is crucial. Many times, I have this problem, if it's at all warm, then I don't want to, I just want to wear a t-shirt. And then you start walking, and you know how the weather is here, and then the cloud goes over the sun, and it gets, you know, sort of like 45, and the wind's blowing in the middle of summer, and it's like, whoo Right? Well, that's no fun either, right? So it is, it, you know, dress appropriately for the weather. Um, so you've given yourself time. You've freed up this block of time. I don't have to worry about it. I can just walk as long as I want, wherever I want. Get some idea again of where you would like to go, just generally. Just say, well, I want to walk over that direction because I know there's not going to be any cars or traffics. And maybe I want to see what Kai Tai Lagoon looks like today. Or, you know, I bet the leaves are changing up on Morgan Hill. I'll go take a stroll over there. Or, or there's some beautiful trees around. I like to check on them every once in a while, see what they're up to um, in different seasons and different light. Um, you know, so just some vague goal like that, and I'm going to go wandering out. So you've done all this, right? You've cleared, and, and you head out. Here's what I think is fascinating, and this is back to what all of these people seem to have recorded um, throughout time. A couple of things happen. One, or at least is what I feel like in, in my case, is I discover that there's all this crap in my brain. I don't know how it got there, and I don't know what it's doing there. But it's like I walked into my house, and there's just old, dusty furniture everywhere. Like, what the hell is all this stuff? Why is it here? And so at some point, I do this sort of mental pitching out process, right? It's just like, oh, just clean. All this stuff just sort of vanishes. Or another analogy I've had also is I feel like, you know, you have all these worries that you have. I always feel like they're lined up. Right? And so you worry about one thing and you go, okay, next, next, thank you. And then the next worry shows up, right? You know this feeling? You have this psych. Well, I, I just feel like all the worries get tired of waiting in line. And they just like wander off. They're like, oh, he's just walking, so we'll just come back later, right? I just feel like somehow there is this clarifying sense of just sort of crap just goes away. I don't know where it goes. I don't think, oh, it should go away. It just seems to just vanish. I think it's the endorphins. I really do. I think it is that your body injects you so some feel-good drugs. You feel good. You stop worrying. Hey, it's easy. Um, and then a couple of things seem to occur. And it, it varies from walk to walk, but these are regular features. One, often, I'll get these moments of really remarkable clarity. Something, I don't know what, will be like right there. And it could be anything. It would be like, you know, I really want some ice cream. And then I'll go, I'm going to go get some ice cream, right? I just, here I go. But often it's, it's clarity about the personal issues. Like, oh, you know, if, you're, if I'm worried about something, all of a sudden, so often, I'll just like, I'm actually not worried about that. One of my favorite realizations is when I've been worrying about something and I realize I actually don't care. Like somehow I've convinced myself to have this fake worry and I've been carrying this fake worry around with me. 
And then on the walk, at some point, it'll just be like like that. It's just in my head. I just go, oh, I don't even care about that. Like, <laughs> it's it's great. It's wonderful. Um, primarily, my mode of expression is writing, and so if I'm writing a lot, whole aspects, elements of stories, paragraphs, pages will just roll out, roll out in my head. I'm not thinking about it, but all of a sudden, there they are. There's the pages roll by. The writing just goes shh, words. Through my head, whole sentences, paragraph, pages, literally just write themselves as I'm walking along. Dialogue happens in my head. I can hear the voices of my characters talking. They do stuff. I'm like, oh, wow, look what they're doing, right? Just in my head, just, again, it, it opens a space. And this is what all these people have talked about. That, they, that as they walk, all of a sudden, Beethoven always carried in his pocket when he walked music paper. Because this is where his ideas came from. We have first sketches of almost all his major works from his walking papers. He's walking along, do, 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 and then there it is. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Pretty good. I like that. I'll stop and write that down. I like it, yeah. You know, really, but this is, this is what he did. I mean, I, I still how he starts. You know that starts on an eighth note rest? What the hell kind of composer starts a piece on an eighth note rest? But that's what he did. So I, somehow that's like, oh, pause, and then boom, we're off. Great. Write it down. So this is what seems to happen. For painters, uh, many painters have recorded that. I mean, the Impressionists, of course, spring to mind here, but other ones where they just said they'd be walking and they'll see a color, a, a pattern of light, a particular reflection. And it's not that they're going to paint that color or that pattern of light, but they just unlock some whole new sense of how they can visually express the world, how they can visually express themselves. Um, if you've ever walked with painters, I was walking on a couple years ago with a painter on the, uh, the uh, Dungeness Lighthouse Spit, and we, this unbelievably colorful array of rocks was there. And I said, aha, why don't you paint like that? And he's like, oh, yeah, right. It's impossible, right? Because you can't paint that beautifully. Because the colors are just so vibrant, but, it, but whole palettes spring forth in the stones. You have stones that will have 100 greens in them. You can see just for a moment, but the light has to be right. The, the, the water, the moisture has to be right. The stone has to be positioned right. But all of a sudden, these moments of visual, auditor, uh, musical clarity will just come forth. And they're just there. Again, I don't know why exactly that is, but this is the thing with walking. Is it's, it's, it's been testified by these people for forever. And there it is. And so, like I said, I really want to encourage you to try this. Uh, another thing that I think will happen um, for you when you walk, and again, it depends on your particular bent, um, is I'm not a particularly visual person, and yet there'll still be just, you'll come around, there'll be a cobweb with maybe a spider ding. I don't know why we've seen a million cobwebs, but there in that light, in that place, that for just a moment, it's like, oh, wow. I can almost never think of a walk where something damn near miraculous didn't appear, at least momentarily, and then vanish. Or, or uh, ravens, where I walk in the country, there's a pair of resident ravens all the time. They're always doing something fascinating. I never know what it is, but they make noises, they drop stuff on you, they just, they're, they're great. Uh, eagles will fly by, little birds will scuffle around in the dirt. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, that's the part of the magic of it. And somehow, this 
being in that particular frame of mind and then having these events occur, which I think are, of course, interlinked, obviously, it seems very uplifting. One of the elements of humanism, to go back to the beginning, is the world, because you're in it, is an amazing and an amazingly good place. And I think a lot of what we get told is the world is crappy and we're sort of third rate. This is, this is the, the, the anti-humanist line. Um, if, if you're a woman and you've been looking at uh, fashion ads your whole life, I apologize for that, because what they say is you're an ugly bitch, right? <laughs> your boobs are too small, your lips don't look right, your eyebrows are wrong, your pants are wrong, your ass is big, whatever it is, right? Every message that you get consistently says you are second-rate at best, third-rate probably. But we have a product that if you used it might obscure for a little while your unwholesomeness, right? I'm, I'm not, right? Is that not true? They don't seem to say you're beautiful just the way you are. That doesn't seem to be the underlying or overt message. The message of humanism is we are all beautiful just the way we are, and in fact, the more like ourselves we can become, the more beautiful we'll become. And it seems to me, at moments when I'm out walking, and again, this is recorded chapter and verse by these people, that's what becomes clear. Wow, I feel good, my mind is clear, and the world is incredible. It's incredible that I'm in the world. It's incredible that the world is this way. What, what a joy, what a pleasure. The birds never say, ah, you're second rate. You call that a water. <laughs> right? You don't get this sort of insistent negative input that I, that I think we just grow sort of numb to, and yet there it is, grinding on us all the time, grinding away. And so I do think these moments are important from the humanist standpoint because they just make you feel better about you and better about the world you're in. And at some point, that is the impulse of humanism. I, I, you know, I just think it, it's an, essentially an optimistic worldview. Because it says, no matter how bad things seem, no matter what the hell else is going on, I am going to invest myself in some work. Again, the, the, the woman I talked about last time, aggressively translating, you know, Newton's works. Why? Why would she do that? At some level, she has to believe her contribution to the world is valuable. She's valuable. What she has to say is valuable and worth being preserved, worth living on. Again, this is back to the notion that our works survive us. Think of how optimistic that is as a view. If you think, hell, I'm probably going to die in childbirth, plus I wasn't very good looking to begin with. Um, well, what the hell is the use, right? Really, I mean, you can't, you just can't get the work done. You can't do it. People often say there's this fundamental arrogance. I think there is a certain kind of arrogance, a certain kind of self-love. Well, I think there is and should be about this. But part of it has to be from this fundamental, I would argue, optimism. That, hey, I can do something that's, that's pretty good. Because I've felt it, I've seen it, I've touched it. I've been on a walk, come around a corner, and there it is. And I think, ah, yeah, that's amazing. It's an amazing world. Maybe I can do something amazing too. And again, this is what they keep recording. Vita Sackville West is on here. Uh, people know Sissinghurst, that, that's one of her great, uh, and, and her two great poems, the, 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 yeah, the White Gardens at Sissinghurst, 
two great poems. Uh, that, that she wrote a lot of interesting material. If you've ever read All Passion Spent, by the way, wonderful novel. Read All Passion Spent, great novel. Uh, but her two poems, The Garden and The Land, were both written in part because she was such an avid walker. She loved to walk the countryside around Sissinghurst and around before that where she lived Knoll. Um, very vast estate, but, but particularly Sissinghurst. And she basically walked out in the land and then lived in a tower. That was her two ways of being. But it was the walking, she said, consistently that freed her mind so that she could return to the tower. So that she could go back there and, I don't know, be, write, express herself. But she needed the walking. Um, so this is, this is what the central argument here is. It's not philosophically profound. It's, it's mechanically very simple. But I think this is what, again, humanism keeps coming back to. We want it to be a Guggenheim foundation. We want it to be some huge institution. We want it to be a series of buildings or a, or a big library, but it's not. I really don't think it is. I mean, those things are all nice. But it is this practice. Because now imagine, go back you know, to a time when you have large groups of people who are doing this. Consistently. Freeing their minds up. Notice the other aspect of this. Generally, there's two modes of walking. One, by yourself, which tends to be hugely meditative. You're spending time with yourself and your own thoughts in a peculiarly, like I said, clarifying way. People often notice it's nice to walk with one other person and, and perhaps chat with them. They say Many people have reported, again, if you look at the letters, a great aid to conversation. Quiet, contemplative, slow conversation. Because you're going to be out there for a long time. Um, if, if you've never walked all night with someone in conversation, I highly recommend it. <laughs> because you'll come around the corner and you'll see the sun rising and you go... Holy crap! The sun's rising. It's just this amazing that, that the time has stopped. You know, the stars have wheeled overhead. And you go for menudo. Yeah, that's right. And you go 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 for some breakfast. But I, I do recommend this heartily because, again, it is this fundamental element. Again, I I I know it sounds simple and almost silly, but I think that's right. It should be simple and silly. But notice, it's profoundly human. If we have the leisure, again, you've, you've God done the time study, so you tell me, uh, and, you, and you have the time, then why not? It doesn't cost anything. And you can just go out. About two years ago, people walked the Larry Scott Trail out there as it goes away from the port. So I was out about a mile maybe along there, just where it starts to go uphill. And um, a woman was coming. She had a walker. She had the little tennis balls on the front of it. <laughs> And she was 95, I don't know, uh, something like that. I thought she was at least a mile from any starting place. And it was, I think, late November. And I thought, wow, she was not making good time, by the way. Uh, you know, she was just sort of scrunching along. And I thought, this is amazing. This, I want to be her, right? This is the woman I want to be when I'm 95 years old. Uh, and so I stopped and had a little chat with her. And I said, wow. I said, you know, this is kind of amazing. And she says, oh, no, this is great. This is great. I love this. Right? I get out and about. 
And I said, well, well, you know, how long does it take you? She said, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought, right, that is the right answer. I don't know. Hell, I'm 95 years old. I got no place to be. Right? She's not in a hurry. And, and so, I, you know, I should have told her, I don't think you got your heart rate up. You know, I said, I don't think you're doing it right. You know, but basically she just said, well, I feel great, right? And that, that is the fundamental final piece of it. It makes you feel great. makes you feel great as you, in yourself, in your environment. And when you feel great as you, in yourself, in your natural environment, what's going to come to the fore? Hopefully, the best part of you. If you're a painter, it's going to be your best visual ideas. If you're a sculptor, it's going to be some strange form. And like I said, any artist, writer, poet, anybody I've talked to, musician, they say the same thing. You go out for a walk and just all of a sudden, there it is. And you just stop and you go, well, I'm doing that. Sometimes by the time you get home, it's gone. <laughs> Sorry, I have to tell the truth. That also happens. But sometimes it's not gone. Sometimes when you get home, there it is. It's like this glowing ball of light in your hand. It just lives with you. It stays with you. And that's, that's the joy and the power of walking. And this is the central idea, again, of humanism. These moments that help us sort of be the best version of ourselves in us, in our own environment, in our own way. There's no way to impress. There's nothing to achieve. There's nothing to accomplish. What's the point? That's the point. From that, from people doing that, from this list of people, like I said, could go on and on, that's where these works come from. How do these people compose these works? They compose these music by walking. How do they write these novels? By walking. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. And maybe it doesn't make any sense at all. But if you look at the record, that's what's been going on pretty much most of the time. Um, and so this, again, first element of the steps to humanism. You need the leisure, and you need the mindset. But if you have those two, it's pretty simple otherwise. You just have to give yourself the license, remember, the license to allow yourself to go out and enjoy this walk, and then just see the last element, chance. No guarantees whatsoever. See, this is a, I think this is the final thing we hate about this. If I go out and walk 30 minutes at 65% of my maximum heart rate three days a week, my doctor guarantees me I will be healthier. It's a deal we've made. If I go out strolling for no particular reason, with no particular goal, under no particular time frame, I may or may not see something amazing, have a nice thought, I might just get rained on and get cold. And come home and go, well, that was cold and rainy, because that happens too. Right? Sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes the ravens don't fly overhead. Ah. But the other side of it is, I think if you try it, you'll, you might discover that, that you know, walking is okay. Thank you very much.